Hi there, and welcome back to Think Aloud with Dr. G. This is a space where we can think aloud together about education, special education, learning, language, and life. I'm so glad you're here. You know this podcast is about thinking aloud together, and I get to do that in this conversation you're about to hear. I am so excited. Today is part one of my conversation with Michael Fagella Luby. Dr. Fagella Luby is a professor of special education and director of the Alice Neely Special Education Research and Service Answers Institute at Texas Christian University. I asked him to tell us about his educational journey and how he came to the field of special education. As we explore the teaching and learning experiences he shares, we dive into questions and concepts that ring true for all educators. Join us. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Michael Fagella Luby. And because you are so awesome and have so many titles, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do. It is great to be with you. Um, I am Michael Fagella Luby, and I am a professor of special education at Texas Christian University. And I direct the Alice Neely Special Education Research and Service, or more easily, the Answers Institute here at TCU for special education research and service. So it's great to be with you. It is so good to hear your voice and I get the pleasure of seeing your face on Zoom. So how long have you been at TCU? Oh yeah, so this is the start of my ninth year at TCU. I was at uh, the University of Connecticut for seven years as a tenure professor and uh, a variety of roles there. Uh, and then my wife is from this area of Texas. So we uh, we were having a second child and decided to make our way to uh, to the great state of Texas. It's a great place to be. The weather's a little nicer there right now than it is here anyway. Maybe. Yeah, right now. <laughs> <laughs> right now. So um, you are in the field of special education, and you and I both know what that means. But a lot of people I talk to don't really have a sense of kind of all of the facets of education. So talk to me a little bit about special education for you, like how you got started in this field, what brought you to like how you even learned about what special education is and how to connect to it. Yeah, you're spot on about you know, the field of special education in just K-12 schooling, right, is 13 recognized categories of disability and sort of, okay, what, what does that mean, right, as a, as a profession? And um, I'll, I'll say two things about that. Uh, one, about how I got into it. And then maybe one, if you help me remember, sort of the way I'm thinking about it now and, and how, how much that changes over time time, or maybe it hasn't changed at all. Maybe you'll be able to push back a little bit and we can sort of think about this together. Um, so I, uh, I was a high school teacher in Jacksonville, Florida, go Bishop Kenny, uh, wonderful, wonderful opportunity. I was part of AmeriCorps, uh, and was a first year teacher right out of college, um, through a service program where we went to schools across the country. There was, there was a program at the university of Notre Dame, and uh, we, were, we were supposed to be placed in sort of underfunded schools, giving them extra resources as teachers. But what it meant was my first year of teaching, I taught high school chemistry and high school English. Uh, and, 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 and actually, that wasn't what I was hired to teach. I was hired to teach math, math and computer science 
And then about a month later, it was math and English because they found out I was an English major. And then right before school started, it was chemistry and like they, it kept changing. And then I always tell my students, you know, you, you do anything to get the job. And that's really what it's about. So my uh, first year of teaching, I was a chemistry teacher. And then um, I've all, I always taught English. Uh, I only do the chemistry thing for a year. That was, I always say I taught chemistry. I didn't say I taught it well, you know, kind of one of those, that's a whole separate set of stories. Good at chemistry, not a good teacher of chemistry. Anyway, the, the sort of over this experience of teaching kind of what some people would describe as like both sides of your brain, right? Uh, I got really interested in why is it that, I mean, okay, you and I, we're, we're smart folks, but when we read Shakespeare and we're not in practice, like that's just the challenge. The, the text of Beowulf doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, right? So, okay, somebody struggles with that. Yeah, no problem. We get that. But what about when I teach the most simple, straightforward short story? Um, the most dangerous game, right? Which is really simple. And I would have students as freshmen in high school, they could read the words, but, but there was no understanding of what was happening. And, and in my chemistry class, I would have kids who um, A equals B over C, solve for C. Couldn't do it. No conceptual, mechanical understanding of what, what they needed to do. And I, so I, these questions are these anomalies, right? That little bit of scientist that I, I still am. When these anomalies come up, you start asking questions about why do some kids learn differently? And I, and I know kids are different, right? But the idea of like, come on, that was a pretty clear explanation. What do you mean you didn't get it? You know, right? Like that sort of naive first, second year teacher who's like, but didn't I say it clearly? Should I say it louder now? Like, what? Right. Do I just need to say it more slowly this time? Yeah. Louder. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's foreign policy at its finest. I think that what, what it started to raise for me were these, these questions. And so, um, you know, it probably won't won't be of interest to to anybody else listening, but but maybe it'll inspire somebody. Um, I called a professor where I had gone to school, a woman that I really admired, and I described to her, I'm I want to understand this more. Like I'm enjoying teaching. I'm online to be a principal down the road here. I'd become an administrator at that point, and uh, and those kids were happening too, Lisa, because I know you have an affinity for these kids too. So there's 1,650 students in the school. I'm working with the 50 kids in the most trouble. They call them Fagella's Fabulous 50, right? Because I was Fagella back then, not Fagella. I mean, these kids, there were a couple of kids, too, that we took weapons off of. They were, they were generally, like, they engaged in behavior that was prob really problematic. The other 48 kids, they would forget to turn in homework, so they'd get break detention. So they'd forget to go to the break detention, so they get detention after school. They forget to go to detention after school. So they get Saturday school. They forget to go to Saturday school suspension, right? All because they missed a homework is executive functioning words. I didn't have then, but executive right. function, really sweet kids who just weren't getting the reinforcement they needed to complete the, the tasks they were asked. So or I called the skills they needed to complete the task. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. And by high school, nobody was teaching them. That was fine. That's exactly right. 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 Uh, so I called Joyce and I, and I said, you know, uh, I'm noticing all this from behavior to academics, like what's going on here? And she said, she said the scariest thing to me. She's like, well, you know what you need to do. And I was like, no, that's why I called you, you know? And she said, you need to, uh, you need to call this, this guy, Mike, who was another professor in the program. And I, I would no more have thought to call this person than, you know, I don't know, launch my own missile to the moon. Like I was, there was nothing about approaching him about something vulnerable that I was willing to do. Um, 
And so I did. I took her advice and I called him. One of the single most important conversations in my life. When you reach out to somebody and you hit their sweet spot. And I started to describe to him what I was interested in. And I remembered I was the game day manager at a soccer game. So the, the stadium is there. And he, I had the first like cell phone I'd ever had. And I'm standing at the game and I'm like, you know, Mike, uh, this is uh, what I'm thinking of, uh, you know, and I'm just like a mess. Right. And he was so generous and he was so kind and he was so, so supportive. And he, he sort of finished with, you know, you need to decide where you want to go and uh, study special education at either the University of Kansas with Don Deschler, or there were a couple other, couple of the universities, but that was the one in special education. And it captured, it captured the things I wanted to know about because their program was about enhancing continuity instruction without watering it down. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to find a way that everybody could play. That uh, all boat. I'm a kid from New England, right? All boats rise with the tide. Really good, high quality instruction is going to help the high achieving kids learn it even better. And it's not going to leave sort of an old tagline now for you and me as old educators, but no child left behind, right? I mean, that idea of don't right. leave anybody behind because that's not what you're in it for teaching. You want everybody to play. So, um, so that's how so I, I got into to, it. I have yeah. to ask though, none of this story says I knew what special education was. None of this story says I had language for or knew where to seek these resources. So as somebody who trained to be a teacher, you had none of that. None, right? No, exactly, exactly, right? So, so I mean, I was teaching in a private independent school. It turns out I was, I was a diocesan high school. They don't, they don't have kids. I mean, they don't have kids. They don't have services for kids with disabilities. We have plenty of kids with, with disabilities, right. it turns out. Uh, and by the way, this is a, as a footnote here, this is becoming a whole new area of work for me in my research is helping these schools to see all the great things we know about doing that actually fit really in line with their mission anyway of, of sort of an all are welcome. So there's irony there that I, I was coming full circle, but you're right. I, you, I mean, Lise, Dr. G, you should have seen me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a dumb guy, but my first two, three semesters, I didn't know the acronyms. I didn't know the law. I'm taking classes with Rudd Turnbull at the university of Kansas. Every third word is an acronym of some kind. And I'm like, I'm writing them down. I'm going to look that up later. I'm going to look that up later. I'm going to look that up later. It got to a point where I knew I'd been okay. It was after a year of taking all that language. I took a speech language pathology class with Hugh Katz, who's now at Florida State, but he was at KU as well. I, I mean, again, I was right, even though I'd spent a year learning special ed, then I had to spend learning speech language pathology language because you, you, um, you know this, right? No one paradigm shining a, a light on the challenge of educating a child who struggles is going to solve the problem. If, if it was easy, anybody would do it. It would be no problem. Right. We right. don't have that. What we need is as many spotlights, what, what Tom Skirtick calls multi-paradigmatic thinking, that you want to have all these different lights on all these different sides, the speech language pathologist, the special ed, the general ed, the, even the administrator, the parent, the family focus, right? That's how we're going to figure out how to support that kid in a successful way. And I got really lucky, but oh, oh, Lisa, I had no idea what they were talking about. And, and true story, about, um, about a year and a half into the program, I went back to Notre Dame and I was visiting my roommate uh, who was on campus and uh, we're walking across campus. I was so excited to see him. And he says to me, so what's your doc program like? 
And I just started and I'm like, ba, 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 ba. You know how I am, right? I just talk, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> but finally, and he loves me, but he's bigger than me. And he's just, he's, he's well-built. He's, he'd be a football player, tight end kind of guy. He leans over and he puts his arm around me and he gets real close. And he says, if you use one more acronym, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> and I was like, but that's special ed, man. That's all we do. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I got to learn, I guess, and this is where the second point was going to come in here is to say, I have outside my office where, I'm, where you can see me, but they, they can't. So there's a little bagel shop over here, bagel shops over here and the burger shops over there. And I frequently will say to my students while I'm teaching and I'll point and I'll say, see that guy in the red Camaro right there getting out of his car? When, when he thinks special education, what does he think about? He thinks about wheelchair. He thinks about blindness. He might think about somebody who's uh, deaf or hard of hearing. Because of the world we live in, he may have heard of something called autism spectrum disorders, although he's not really sure what it is. And that's, that's kind of it. We tend to think of physical disabilities. That, that's what special education means to, to most folks. And yet, 80, 85% or more of disability doesn't come with some physical component. It's right. Hidden. They're called hidden disabilities because you can't see them. You can't spot them on the street. Right. Absolutely. And I love the data that, that says uh, when we ask classroom teachers, how many kids in your class do you think have a disability? What's interesting is those hidden disabilities are identified by the teacher at a two to one rate over those which really exist. So, so if they have 30 kids in their class and three of those kids statistically have a disability, they will actually say six or seven because the, the, these, these sort of fine grained, there's, there's the wheelchair disability, there's maybe a diagnosed disability, like I deal with learning disabilities, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, that kind of thing. And then there's this group of kids who are really struggling because of the systems we've created around them that haven't met their needs. And we confuse those. They don't fit in the pool of the wheelchair. They don't fit in the pool of the diagnosed and, and they don't know what to do. And I actually find that is some of the most interesting prism of, uh, or place that I spend my time is thinking about, um, I've, I've, as you know, I've uh, most recently been spending a lot of time in the learning disabilities world because I'm the past president of, of DLD and we talk a lot about like kids being at risk of learning disabilities, or is it at risk of diagnosis of learning disabilities, or is it at risk? What is this risk thing? What does that mean? Right. Um, and too often, what it means is is uh, at risk of not getting the education that they deserve, and that means with or without these thirteen categories, I find special education is a Wonderful opportunities. The last thing I say here is to say, if you are trained as we are in special education, what it does is instead of you thinking first about the kid in the middle, or like some of my colleagues, they'll think about the kid who's gifted and talented. When you think about kids with disabilities, you consider education through the lens of those who are most marginalized by that system. And that's very important in today's world. And what it means, though, is you, instead of, and I'm sort of saying this with my hands here because I'm Italian, but like, if I've got gifted kids in the one side and, and the middle in the middle and kids with disabilities on the left or whatever, the other end, I don't look just at that group. I turn it sideways. 
And like a telescope, I look through all of those learning experiences again, so I can go back to this idea of enhancing learning without watering it down. All boats rise with the tide because it turns out those practices that are so powerful with the kids who struggle will also improve all the other kids' experiences. Isn't that what we all wanted? I think that's so much more satisfying. I would have been more satisfied as a teacher if I knew I was making a difference. I, I, I in many ways, the frustration I experienced, many people listening will, will identify with this. When I'm teaching and my kids aren't getting it, there's, there's almost nothing worse in the world for a teacher. That, that that's the moment where you, I'm going to have to redo everything and I'm, it's okay because they, I need to find a way for them to learn. And if I don't have that tool in the toolbox, I either need to go build it, learn it, make it, whatever. But, but yeah. That's a really powerful statement because we as educators, teachers do. Like we recognize if a student isn't making the progress or it isn't making the connection, we will stop and say, what am I doing wrong? And what do I need to do? And how do I need to revamp this? But what you're bringing up, it's so valuable, is that idea of meeting the needs of the most intense or the student who maybe has the most barriers to access for the learning, but also layer that into all of those multiple perspectives you were talking about. So it isn't your role as the teacher just to go, well, I did that terribly and I must start from the very beginning all by myself and do it all over again, but to utilize the resources that exist, gather those other perspectives, right? So if we can take the expertise and knowledge and build our own support structures as teachers, pull in the speech language pathologist, ask the special educator, although apparently it might lead you to a doctoral program, which isn't all bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> but recognize that those different perspectives have value. And maybe you're looking at the same situation from a different angle to help you see the solution. So a lot of the thing you were talking about with offering, like I love that idea of flipping what we look at as like a typical bell curve and flipping it on its side to look through it. I love that idea that that visual imagery is so great, but that's the crux of UDL. Look, an acronym, huh? Universal design for learning, right? So recognizing the barriers for the kids who are most at risk for missing out or not being able to access. And when you build in the instructional pieces for them, you are helping all of the ships rise. You're helping all of the kids learn. That's exactly right. You know, uh, today I stand uh, at my university and uh, it's in Fort Worth. And one of the slogans about Fort Worth is um, it's where the West begins. And one of my great fears for teachers in Boston or LA or wherever, even in Missouri, I don't want a teacher to ever feel like they're alone in the last outpost in the West. And, and too often they go into the classroom doing the very best they can and then when that doesn't work for the kiddos, they don't know what to do because right. they feel isolated and alone. And I don't, I don't care if you're, I don't know, building a building. Nobody does that by themselves, right? Even right. doctors delivering care, nobody does this stuff by themselves. And so I love what you said about sort of recognizing the perspectives and the team and the idea that I don't have to be alone in this. And if things didn't go well, well, it turns out I'm human. Yes, it turns out I'm human. Absolutely. Teachers bring so much energy and passion to their work and they can easily feel overwhelmed, but they are not alone. And yes, they are human. And every person in that school, on that team, in our field has a support system right there, willing and able to help. 
I don't know about you, but I am absolutely energized after listening to this conversation with Michael Fagella Luby, and I'm ready to hear the second half of it. I hope you are too. So join us next time, and we will finish this conversation with Dr. Fagella Luby, as well as share some of the other resources that he has provided. Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.